Marxism Vowel is a movement committed to exploring and responding to the unexpected ways that God is moving and speaking in and around us. This podcast is part of that. We want to have conversations that matter with folks in all kinds of walks of life because we believe that the God of the Bible so often shows up in surprising and everyday kinds of ways. We want to pay attention and talk about that and just maybe be changed by it all. Thanks for joining the conversation. Hey, I'm Aaron, host of the Foxes and Fowl podcast. My guest today is Jamba Kofi. Jamba is an award-winning community leader, an author, a poet, a public speaker, and a musician. Originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, he spent much of his life as a refugee. He's currently an undergraduate student at the University of British Columbia, pursuing a degree in international relations with a minor in creative writing. Stick around afterwards for a few things I'm taking away from our time. Until then, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Njamba Kofi, welcome to the Foxes and Fowl podcast. It's so good to meet you. How are you today, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Good. Well, thank you for giving me your time. I, I, uh, I, I'm just getting to know a little bit about you. Uh, we've never actually met in person, but uh, I've been on your website. I've watched a YouTube video. I've <laughs> done a little bit of reading, and you, you have quite a story. I'm wondering if uh, you can kind of introduce yourself. I'm sure lots of people know you, but lots of people don't. So, and I think you're someone people should know. So, tell us, tell us a little bit about uh, how you ended up here and and what you, yeah, what's brought you to this point. Thank you. Uh, my story is rather long, so I never know where to start and where to stop. But uh, yeah, I'm Jaba Kofi. I'm originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Grew up in the country until I was 11, and then my family fled. Ever since we've lived in multiple African countries as refugees, my family are still refugees. Uh, mostly we spend, we spend time in Malawi and Eswatini. Uh, and it's while in Swaziland that I got a scholarship to study at the United World College in Germany. And then from there, I came here to Canada as an international scholar um, at UBC. Mm-hmm. So that's the shortest version. That's as far <laughs> as I can condense. Well, that's good. Uh, well, you, you, have a, you have a book about your, uh, your story. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'm a writer. I write a lot. Um, my book, my published memoir is called Refuge E, the Journey Much Desired. I published it three years ago uh, at the age of 20. And it's it basically follows my journey as a refugee uh, from day one since we arrived in the refugee camp in Malawi and then my life in the refugee camp in Malawi, in Zaleka refugee camp, that's what it's called, uh, going to school at Likuni Boys Secondary School and then having to flee our refuge again because of the instabilities in Malawi and in Swaziland. Um, my life as a refugee in Swaziland, schooling, the hardships, and uh, how I ended up in Germany, pretty much. Um, but I like to think of my book as something more than just my story, something that tells the struggles of young people living in various refugee camps uh, whose stories don't get acknowledged. Mm. One of the reasons why I actually wrote the book was to 
try and raise that awareness, but at the same time, try and source different means in which we can support the youth living in the refugee camps I've lived in. So, yeah, my story is not my own. It's that of refugees just through told through my experiences. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's great. I, I mean, I think it's, uh, I, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I look forward to it. I, I, that's, it's, clearly it's an experience that most people don't have. <laughs> uh, and, and I wonder, I wonder if there, there's, could you tell us something that we may not know about what it's like to be a refugee? Um, I don't know it's kind of a spur of the moment question, but I, I uh, and, and maybe, maybe there's too much, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, what's important for people who are, who have never experienced that kind of displacement, who've never experienced that kind of hardship, mm. never had to run for their lives. Like, what, what do we need to know? I think um, the discomfort, the uncertainty, the loss in dignity. Mm. You know, when we were living in Malawi, uh, backstory is that the first refugees, I think historically, I'm not entirely sure, but I think historically the first refugees to arrive in Malawi were Burundians. So ever since then, every single refugee, whether you come from the Congo, from Rwanda, from Somalia, you are called Muburundi. Huh. You know? In Swaziland, the first refugees who arrived there were Mozambicans, uh, particularly of the Shangan ethnic, ethnic group. So every refugee who comes there ever since is called Mshangan, which are pejorative words. So Burundi or Maburundi in Puro, Mshangani, Mshangani in Puro, it's pejorative word to describe refugees. So the reason why I talk about that is because when you are being called those kind of names, you no longer have a name, you no longer own your identity. You are whatever other people decide to call you. And that level of loss of dignity is something that many people don't realize. Many people know about the poverty, you know, the lack, the disease. Um, they know about the post-traumatic, you know, situations, but they don't know that lack of dignity and then the uncertainty. Mm. You never know whether you are going to leave the camp or you are going to live and die there, you know. I've had friends who were born in the refugee camp, grew up in the refugee camp, now are married in the refugee camp. I've had parents wow. who bring their ch children and then they die in the refugee camp. So that level of uncertainty, it's also something that many people don't recognize and like how much it affects people. Uh, even until this moment, I'm still a refugee, although an international student, very privileged to be one of the less than 3% of young people who manage to get tertiary education out of the refugee camps. But I still carry that uncertainty with me. Where I get a citizenship somewhere, you know, is there a country that's going to accept me as their own? Because clearly I can't go back to my motherland. Mm. You know, what other barriers am I going to face when I'm renewing my travel document? I don't have a passport. You know, mm -hmm. So that kind of uncertainty that we carry with us every single day of our lives, it's, it's enormous, it's immense, and people don't seem to realize that. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, 
I, you're looking through your, uh, your website. My goodness, you, you're a busy guy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you, you sit on the boards of several charitable and social organizations. You're, you're a writer and a musician. You've already said you published a book already. Uh, and I guess in your spare time, you're a UBC student. Yeah, one of, one of the things we're interested in on this podcast is, is uh, this idea of vocation or calling, right? Uh, what we're kind of meant to do with ourselves mm-hmm. and how we figure that out. And there are clearly some things that pull at your heart. Uh, um, whether we talk about vocation as the thing that we pursue or the thing that draws us, I, you know, I think is you can use both analogies, but you feel really, it seems to me just in reading about you and, and watching a little bit about you that you're really pulled towards some things and so Mm -hmm. i'd like to hear about how um how your writing and your service work your activist work uh how how those things uh function together how they may uh, how they work together and and maybe a bit about what you kind of hope to do when you're done your degree uh what's the next step yeah no that's that's a big question altogether (laughs) (laughs) but we'll get there we can divide it in uh segments. So let me start by saying that, you know, when I think about my purpose, um, especially as a refugee, somebody who's lived in multiple refugee camps, multiple refugee situations, somebody who's been in the lowest, that, you know, the large part of humanity will never be, like really the lowest. And right now I'm very privileged, you know, to be living in one of the most expensive cities in North America. Um, I like to think of my purpose as, you know, sharing my story, like partly to inspire, partly to inform, but also partly to advocate. So like everything I do falls under those three different categories, inspiring the fellow youth in everything that I'm trying to do, inspiring, people to recognize like how they can be better, but also how they can do better. You know, I'm talking about the uncertainty associated with being a refugee, being a migrant, like the support that many different people can give, you know, inspiring that. So, and then the informing aspect of it as well, uh, always telling these stories that are kind of untold through my writing, through interviews like this, you know, media, through interacting with friends um, and also advocating, advocating for those who are not in situations that they can advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm particularly keen to advocate for equity, diversity and inclusion, uh, anti-racism, things like these are these different intersectional identities that really affect people. Uh, but where it all started, so I'll tell you a story that I haven't actually, I don't think I've told this to anybody who has interviewed me, <laughs> but I thought hmm, it would be interesting for Aaron and, you know, your audience, um, because you are coming from a Christian perspective. I am a Christian myself. I grew up as a Roman Catholic. Uh, my father, my mother, very devout and the values that still direct my life are Christian values. When I was young, when I was a kid, I had always aspired to be a priest. <laughs> you know, I would look at how graceful and how gracious the priests are, how wise they are, how knowledgeable. 
they always had an answer to any question and you know how they have the capacity to influence masses you know through their preaching through their community service and they'll be like that's exactly what i want to do that's what i want to be i applied for the seminary schools uh before we fled and i got actually some amazing opportunities but then you had to flee so mm -hmm. in malawi it was like starting from zero and I go to discover Kuni Boys Secondary School, which was a missionary school uh, by the Marist brothers and white fathers. And I was so keen to go there. It was one of the best schools in the country. Um, and I really worked hard in the refugee camp. Uh, you know, like for, for those who will get the chance to read my book, I actually talk about the hardships of getting started with education, how I almost gave up because I like they could not give me the grade that I desired. And my father pressing on saying, you know, you have to study, you know, it's only through school and through believing in God that you are going to get out of this life. He did not lie to me, like when I'm looking back retrospectively. But eventually I made it to Likuni Boys. And there I was communing with priests and brothers. I was introduced the diocesan, um, you know, like the decision office, they are connecting me with an agreement that I graduate from this missionary school and go directly into a seminary education. And just after my first year at Tilikuni Boys Secondary School, we had to flee again. And then in Swaziland, I actually couldn't find a missionary school. I ended up in a rural high school near the refugee camp. And that's what broke my vision to become a priest. Mm. Uh, but I don't think I lost the qualities that I always admired from priesthood. Um, when you talk about discipleship, I don't necessarily consider myself a disciple of Jesus, but um, everything that I do, it's like it's the calling that I had as a kid, just it manifests in different ways. So when I'm speaking to masses, whether it's through fundraising events for charities, um, I speak to churches, different church groups. I speak to university students. I speak to elementary school students. You know, I've been invited to speak on multiple platforms. And every time I whisper a little prayer to myself, thanking God that I have that opportunity to influence. Mm -hmm because I feel like it's something that I have always dreamt of. And in my writing as well, that's something I, I hope to, you know, to reach a wider audience that I could with my word of mouth. Mm -hmm. uh, before I deleted my social media accounts, I would get messages from readers, like in different parts of the world who are like, oh, I read your book through this friend who recommended it to me, or like different memes that I wouldn't even think about. Hmm. Like, I'm really inspired by your story. Um, I got a, a letter, like a two-page letter from a friend in Germany who read my book, and it kind of forced her to reflect more on her privilege, you know. So that kind of impact is, I think, something that I feel called to do. Um, but the more I think about it, the more I think of, you know, like of maybe doing something greater. So my involvement with charities and nonprofits um, is more like a dress rehearsal for me when I'm thinking about it.
<laughs> I have bigger dreams of building interconnected youth centers on the African continent, for instance. Mm. Uh, yeah, bigger dreams of bringing indigenous cultural education to racialize the youth in North America and Western countries so that they can be more connected to the indigenous roots and uh, in hope that that helps them to understand more of their identity instead of always being looked down upon or even having low self-esteem because they don't really understand who they are. Uh, so things like those, uh, I don't know if I'm still answering the same question that you asked. It's <laughs> great. Hey man, no, it's, uh, it's really remarkable. And one of the things we say a lot and one of the things we're trying to say through foxes and fowl is that you know the church has often talked about ministry in a very narrow kind of way like if you're called to ministry you go to seminary and you become a priest or a pastor and you get do church work and all mm-hmm. but uh i think that certainly uh scripture and I, I think at our best we we acknowledge that god has ministry for for all of us to do uh that that ministry is much broader than uh than the work that i do <laughs> you know and in fact uh you know we you're able to reach uh many more people than i do uh by virtue of the way that you're uh, of the work that you're doing so that's uh i mean i i, w- I would i would say that you you are <laughs> working out a ministry of your own uh that's uh it's pretty mar- remarkable i'm uh yeah, yeah i was uh, well you, you talk about ministry you know i recently thought about like ministry actually uh last last uh, last semester i was on a bus bus 49 to ubc and uh the driver i said hi the driver I always do that um just out of politeness and then he asked me a question and before I knew it, we had a conversation the entire ride. I live in Dunbar, the entire ride to UBC. Uh, his name is Braden. And he was talking to me about ministry, about you know being a disciple of Christ, about what he does and how he enjoys chatting with uh, his passengers. Hmm. That he's using <laughs> like that platform, being a bus driver as a way of continuing Christ's ministry. And, I was wow. so inspired because I had never thought of the fact that any place where we are can be a platform for us to minister. So I absolutely agree with what you are saying. It manifests in different forms. Yeah, that's that's great. I love. <laughs> I I think that uh, I think that our work becomes more interesting, uh, whatever it is, uh, when we think of it in a bigger on a bigger scale than than just doing something for ourselves or, or just making a living or whatever, but as, as committed, committing to mm. a broader vision for uh, the health and well-being of the world mm. <laughs> for all people. So uh, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. That's great. Um, I, I wanted to, uh, to probe a little bit about, um, you know, you, you talked about advocacy and what, what you want to encourage people to do. Mm. Uh, I'm always sort of trying to think about what, you know, coming from a church perspective, what churches can do, like how we can be actively involved um, in caring for people. Uh, but I wonder if, if there's one thing that you could, that you, you were to ask people to do or to take seriously, what, uh, what, what's, what's an action that we can do? I mean, we all know that 
there are big problems in the world. Is, is there one thing or is there a, an organization that you'd like to see supported? Or? Yeah, no, I'm, I always hesitate when I'm asked that question because I don't know exactly where everyone is at and what their capacity is. But one thing that I'm, I know for, for sure, like I'm very certain about this, there is always something that can be done. Mm. Um, in some previous speaking engagements, when I'm asked that question, I'm like, you know, how much do you spend on food per day? Okay, $20 on average. Um, what if you sacrificed one meal? Or out of the $20, you took out $2 per day for 30 days, that makes 60 days. Mm. And I mean 60 bucks, um, you know, 60 bucks in those 30 days. How much impact do you think that money can have? And people don't seem to realize that $60, 60 Canadian dollars can pay for an entire high school of a child in Kakuma refugee camp. Wow or can send a kid to like a more decent primary school in Zareka refugee camp. You know, um, I think I work with different charities and nonprofits, which is good. Um, and I always appreciate people who donate to charities. They should continue doing that. You should continue doing that. Um, but the efficiency and efficacy of those funds most of the times is not as compelling as let's say if three people in like your congregation or three students at UBC were to say, okay, let's save up a uh, hundred bucks every month for 12 months. So in a year we have 1,200 and with that we are going to build a library in this refugee camp or in this impoverished community. Mm. So I would encourage people to start quantifying what they consider as charity. In terms of organizations to donate to, I'm actually in the middle of building an, an organization myself. Uh, ever since like 2018, I've been communicating with, uh, I've been working with Amala Education. Um, it's a UK-based nonprofit that gives distant learning to refugees. Uh, they have established themselves in different countries and they are trying to open chapter in Eswatini in Baga refugee camp where I grew up. Um, and there is a youth club that I founded when I was a city in the refugee camp uh, that we are really working together trying to build like a youth learning center and a resource center. Uh, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's been incredibly hard with different challenges. Then the pandemic kicked in but we have donations of laptops from Lenovo, for instance, that are sitting there. Uh, we have individuals who have committed to providing different materials to build. What we are lacking is funds. Hmm. Money is very important. And like the fact that we haven't set ourselves yet as like legally as a charity or as a nonprofit, that makes it harder. So in some previous speaking engagements, I've had people donate directly like to me and um, then I report back on how we are using those funds. But even other than this, there are tons of refugee initiatives and programs within here in BC itself, you know, mm. 
like off the top of my head, I can think of five different organizations that could benefit from a $5 donation, ISIS or BC, uh, Mosaic Options Society in Surrey. You know, there are multiple, multiple um, organizations. Before the pandemic, I would tell people, if you can make the trip and go and visit a refugee community, do that. Mm. Because one of the things that charities, charity in general, I think, and also from my experiences working with charities, one of the things that I think is lacking in the charitable sector is that connection, establishing a genuine connection. There is somewhat in it, uh, like a disconnect between those who are donating and those who are on the receiving end. And again, for me, it all goes back to the question of dignity. Mm. You know, how dignified are the people you are donating to if you don't know who they are? Uh, if you are not talking to them. But obviously with the pandemic, it's really hard right now to make the trip and go and visit a refugee community somewhere or a racialized youth community somewhere. But I would encourage people nonetheless, like as a tangible action beyond money to just inform themselves. You know, these narratives, um, there is a story in the news that interests you or there is this migrant community or these people who are trying to cross the transatlantic, uh, the, trans the Mediterranean Sea, mm-hmm. who drowned. Follow up on that. Know the root causes. Build that empathy and that compassion. Uh, it all starts for me, at least, with educating ourselves. And that's a tangible thing that everyone can do wherever they are, whatever they are doing. Uh, and I think once somebody starts building their base, knowing what's going on in the world, knowing what's going on in these lives that we hope to impact, to influence, then they are going to know what they can do to actually influence their lives. That's good. Thank you for that. That's, uh, I'm often aware that it's, it's, a, it's a privilege not to know, right? <laughs> to, choose, to choose not to know what's going on in the world is uh, something that we can easily do uh in vancouver <laughs> so I, I appreciate that that's uh that's 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 a good challenge i thank you um i wanted to just uh, ask you what's what's next i mean uh <laughs> you you said you're you're writing you got anything on the go yeah <laughs> besides besides you know getting a degree and starting an organization and you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, those are the priorities. But uh, I'm I'm always writing. Uh, I'm working. Uh, um, with, yeah. Well, I I'm not sure how much detail I can go into on this, but I'm working on a, a trilogy, um, something that tracks experiences of like a young boy whose. Uh, community all of a sudden is decimated by war and finds himself alone as a child soldier. So I'm tracking his life in the community as a child soldier and then be, like finding refuge. Uh, and at the same time, how that story intersects with uh, another young boy from the Western mm. world, so from the US at the moment, that's where my setting is, uh, who also grows up in a very well-to-do family, but very neglected, as it tends to happen um, in many well-to-do families where the only focus is wealth. And mm. like 
raising children is kind of neglected. So I'm trying to trace how these two lives intersect and what kind of conversations they have, how they grow together, how they influence each other once they meet. Um, don't ask me where this is going. <laughs> I'm going somewhere. And at the same time, I'm working on a children's book, actually, because I realized that, you know, I've, I've been privileged to speak to young kids in uh, different elementary schools here in BC at the invitations of their teachers. And the kind of questions they asked me are always interesting questions. Mm. One kid asked, asked me, like, how do refugees poop in the camp? <laughs> a very genuine question that you would never hear from an adult, but an essential one. Because when I thought about it in reply, I was like, yeah, that was one of the hardest things to do. Right. You know? So I'm trying to, I'm writing a story like following a young refugee girl who is living with her grandmother and they are trying to navigate that refugee reality alone. Uh, so these are two main writing projects that I'm working on at the moment. And I mean, we'll see where that leads. Uh, <laughs> wow. That's great. I, I, I hope to see them on bookshelves uh, someday. <laughs> Me too. Uh, that's wonderful. If people want to get your book that's out, Refu Refugee is, is what it's called, right? And uh, is the best place to do that on your website? Yeah, so Refuge-E, The Journey Much Desired, is uh, the full title of the book. And you know, it's available on any major retailer. If you want an e-book, pretty much any retailer can provide that. Chapters, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. If you want paperback uh, or hard copy, um, Amazon.com.ca, like, like any, any Amazon literature will provide that as well as Barnes and Noble. Um, okay. Of course, the shipping might vary depending on what you use, uh, but it's available online pretty okay. much. <laughs> and if people want to keep track of you, I mean, your, your website is jmkofi.com. That's correct. You want to keep track of what you're doing. And uh, I, I mean, I know COVID has ruined everybody's plans, but uh, do you, are, you, are you still speaking for groups? Uh, is there other places people can watch for you? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, invitations like this, I always welcome them. Uh, I can be contacted through my website. I'm also incorporating a sign-up page on my website because I hope to start sending um, monthly newsletters to people just to update them on different things going on in my life, but more importantly, my initiatives. Uh, and just connect, build the community, because I know I know there are so many people who care, but then they don't know how best they can demonstrate that care. And if I can get connected with them somehow, perhaps you can find ways that together we can care. Mm. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't use any social media by principle. LinkedIn, I, I am on LinkedIn, Jabba <laughs> Coffee. Um, and that's because of my current work line position. I don't think I would be on LinkedIn if it wasn't. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not well accustomed to social media, and I found them to be more of a distraction than actually helping me to do the work that I'm doing. So my website is the best shot. Okay. Well, all right. So go to jmkofi.com 
and register for the newsletter and uh, you'll be able to follow what's going on. That's great. Well, my friend, I, I hope we get to meet in person someday. I've really, really enjoyed uh, this time together. Uh, you've been generous with your story and with your time. And so I just want to say thank you and uh, blessings on your work ahead. And yeah, I, I hope we run into each other around UBC at some point soon. Thank you so much. I'm sure we will. Please do keep in touch. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful that you give me this opportunity to chat about my experiences as well. Yeah. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Well, yeah, you're somebody people should know. So thanks for taking the time to introduce yourself. <laughs> thanks a lot, Aaron. <laughs> okay, take care. Thanks for hanging out with us today. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Gemma Kofi. Here's a few things I'm taking away from our time. I really appreciated the idea that our story is not our own. Sharing our lives and attending to the lives of others is key for building the kinds of communities and relationships that bless the world. As Jamba made clear, it's relationship that moves us beyond charity and towards something more hopeful. Second, I was struck by his thoughts about the loss of dignity for refugees. As a Christian, it seems to me that so much of what Jesus does in calling and healing and ministering has to do with restoring dignity. I think we need to ask ourselves how we can work for a world, even in our small corner of it, where people are honored and treated with dignity. And third, there's always something that can be done. I love both the challenge and the hope of that. Whoever we are with whatever we've got, there's always something that can be done to make the world a more life-giving place. Thanks again for listening. Check out jmkofi.com for more of what Jamba is up to. Thanks to the Foxes and Fowl team, University Hill Congregation, and the Pacific Mountain Region of the United Church of Canada for making this happen. Thanks to Davis Miller for the soundtrack. Check him out wherever you get your music. And until next time, grace and peace.